Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Creaseman. And I'm Ira Creaseman. And on this episode, we discuss one of the most famous scenes in Final Fantasy history, one of the most emotional scenes in Final Fantasy and video game history, really, uh, regardless of whether you're taking polls in Famitsu like they've done before that show that, or just talking to people that have played the game. We could put the spoiler off no longer. You've gotten this far with us. So on this episode, we talk about the death of Aerith. One of the most powerful and impactful moments in the history of the franchise and truly in the history of gaming. And so we're going to have to talk about why that is. We're going to ask a few essential questions related to that. Why is this a seminal moment in gaming? Why is it so effective? Why is it different than some of the other character deaths that have come before it in the franchise? Maybe even some that come after it. What does it compare to in other literature in terms of being both a shocking moment, but an emotionally impactful one, and one that is felt by a great community of people that can even be argued to be genre-shifting or medium-defining. It's it's that big of a moment. So we'll talk about some others in literature that you can compare it to, and then we'll get into a conversation about how video games create very real emotions in players. But before all of that, Ira, we have to get there. So when last we left our heroes, Cloud was tripping balls. Yes, he was. <laughs> Just having a brutal time. <laughs> It was, uh, yeah, it was a heck of a dream he was having. He handed over the uh, black material to Sephiroth, or a version of him did, while his, the spirit of his younger self tried to hold him back. Uh, and then he had a dream conversation with Aerith, which I'm only now realizing perhaps is, is meant to be paralleled by the dream conversation in Final Fantasy VII Remake. Sure. Yeah. So Aerith is going to go off and, and take, you know, she said she's going to handle Sephiroth on her own, and she's got to go do that. And then Sephiroth says, we must stop that girl soon. Creep. Damn. So Cloud wakes up. He's in a bed I don't recognize. Tifa explains that Aerith is gone. Cloud says, yeah, she went to the City of the Ancients. Barrett says, by yourself? Why'd she go by herself? And I think, gotta think, yeah, didn't Aerith just give Barrett a hard time for wanting to face Dine by himself? Like, no, man, we are a team. We're a family. I think Barrett's really feeling that in this moment. Yeah. Cloud explains that only Aerith can save us from Meteor, which kind of feels like, yeah, but we're still a team. Shouldn't we be doing this together? But he's probably right, so I guess I get it. Yeah. Tifa and Barrett say, all right, Cloud, well, then let's, we got to go to the City of the Ancients. Obviously, that's what we're doing next. We're, we're going with her. We're going to be with Aerith. And he says, no, 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 no. I might lose my mind again. If Sephiroth comes near me, and Barrett, ever the supportive big brother, says, Yeah, goddammit, it's because of you that Sephiroth has the black materia. I know you got problems. We all do. But you don't even understand yourself, motherfucker. You gotta understand there ain't no getting off this train we're on. Yeah. Shout yeah. out back to the train in Midgar and Cloud's original analogy about how the people there are stuck and can only go where the train will take them. That's really good stuff. But don't they actually jump off that train? Yes. Yeah, they do. The metaphor of, you know, that, that Barrett's trying to drive home here now is like, you have got to take control 
of your own destiny, man. Even if you don't know what your destiny was supposed to be or what all of this is or, or why you keep having these flashbacks or problems or why you handed over the black materia, the answer in to quit back to Tifa talking to Vincent in the basement of Shinra mansion. Like, so what are you going to do cloud? Just go to sleep and not right. do anything about it. Like, so you're right. It, it, it's a very big brotherly. Like he's not, it, you know, it's a very sports coach choosing that moment to kind of challenge his player rather than inspire him. Right, right. So Cloud explains that he's afraid. He's afraid that if this keeps up, he's going to lose his mind. And and Barrett continues with this, you know, a lot of people have problems in the world, right? It's it's like what you just said, but they go on living. They don't run away. But, but eventually uh, Barrett and Tifa decide to give Cloud a minute to himself. And Cloud says... I'm afraid to find out the truth, but why? So we're really starting to get into this. Yeah. He is coming to the realization that there are things he doesn't know. You know, the the unknowns are becoming a little more known, right? Yeah. Thanks again, Mr. Rumsfeld, for that phrase. But but he doesn't want to know. Like, it's scary to think that maybe this person you've been for the last several months isn't who you really are. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a frightening feeling. So he goes, uh, he, he leaves, and, and this is Gungaga. That's the, the town where there was the big reactor explosion and a lot of people died. We met Zach's parents here, Zach being Aerith's first boyfriend. That's probably going to be pretty important. And then Barrett has a line here that I really like where, you know, I was, I was kind of giving him a hard time for maybe not being, you know, challenging, right, supportive as opposed to supportive, supportive. But what he says is, look, Cloud, even if you do go crazy again, I'll just knock you upside your head and bring you back to normal. Right. <laughs> so good. So perfect, man. Yes, that's, yes. So we've got to go through the sleeping forest in the north to get to the uh, the city of the ancients. Uh, before you can do that, you have to go to the Bone Village. This is a weird thing, man. Yeah. It's this big archaeological site, dusty, and there's a lot of, not a lot is permanent. There's a bunch of tents and such, so... They, they describe it as an archaeological dig, which would suggest that they're digging up uh, human remains and human artifacts. But there's also these giant dinosaur bones or maybe behemoth bones, like monster bones around, right? But also there's like a fighter jet that has crashed into one of the giant yeah. skulls and is just planted nose first in this. It's a weird spot. Yes. And the way that they're conducting their archaeological dig is to send explosions down into the earth to get like the sound waves off of it. It's like that, remember the beginning of Jurassic Park where they send the shockwave into the yeah. dirt and, and get the, I think it's meant to be like that. Yeah. But it's kind of implied like they're sending C4 down into the dirt to do the digging. <laughs> it's weird. The whole yeah. thing is weird. Yes. And I don't, like I can't take it literally. Right. It's, yeah. I. We've talked before about, especially in the older games, about these being sort of, representations and whatnot but yeah I, I definitely think they're going for something here that's not quite fully coming through but the emotional sort of connection to this is unsettling i think again mostly works <laughs> sure sure and it's also like we're gonna go we're, we're about to find this big ancient ruined city and of course there would be archaeological sites around that like that that makes perfect sense right i get that Mm-hmm. because there would have been this ancient civilization 
Uh, and it was a nomadic civilization, right? The ancients were. So some of them might have come through here. There might have been some splitting off, right? We talked about some of the ancients continued their nomadic life and therefore had a, retained their connection to the planet. But most of us did not, right? Like we settled down. So I, I get, I'm, I'm totally on board with there being this big archaeological, paleontological dig here. But just the the way they try to explain the mechanics is so goofy. Yeah. Also, there's a jet. There's a fighter jet. It's a great image. <laughs> uh, that might have been it. Like someone, we got some concept art, and like, yes, I want this in the game. I don't know where. Maybe it doesn't matter, but I want it. <laughs> right. The whole background for this, the whole pre-rendered background, was just some concept art. That was one was like, what's more Final Fantasy than a fighter jet through a dinosaur <laughs> skull or exactly. an ancient behemoth? Right. Like Final fa- or Fantasy and future science fiction, all that stuff in one image, just literally colliding together. It doesn't make sense, Johnson. Whatever. Put it in the game. <laughs> Nomura. I was gonna it seems like a Nomura idea. Nomura song going, <laughs> look, this is awesome. <laughs> this looks dope. It doesn't really make sense. Oh, what is it? Yeah, it doesn't always and you know what it doesn't always matter. Sometimes like we were talking last time when I'm trying to figure out what, what the uh, AI situation with K at Sith is, maybe it doesn't matter that much. Yeah. So yeah, maybe this yeah. maybe this just it why is there a fighter jet? Why? Yeah, maybe it doesn't matter that much. Maybe what matters is, like you were saying, the the implication of the thing, right? It's unsettling. It's weird. There's, uh, a, you know, the, there are human artifacts here from thousands of years ago. That's the important part. The mechanics right. are kind of like, eh. Yeah. You got to find the lunar harp, which you do by telling the guys to dig in a, the correct part. The only reason I knew where the correct part was was because I had the uh, strategy guide. You get the lunar harp, you go into the forest. It's the forest where you had the dream conversation with Aerith. It's the exact same forest. Without the lunar harp, you'll just wander in circles. Uh, But with it, it automatically works. And eventually, our heroes approach the edge of a valley. And there's this slow reveal that's really cool where the uh, interior of the valley slowly scrolls up as your map sort of slowly scrolls down and you get this reveal of the valley. And there's a giant lake in the middle. It's not entirely clear what's going on here. There may be a petrified giant tree or petrified branches of some kind, a giant yeah. bush maybe. And speaking of unsettling, you remember when you go to the moon in Final Fantasy IV and you get that lunar surface music? Yeah. The music here is, I think it's sort of part of Uematsu's alien landscape oeuvre. Yeah. Right? It's, it's slightly off-putting. It's a little peculiar. And the whole place is off-putting and peculiar. There's like giant snail shells and there's like an aquamarine life as also architecture thing going on that's that's really interesting. And frankly, unlike anything I've, I've seen in, in any of the other games and in, in anything else, anywhere, the, the City of the Ancients is the actual definition of the word unique. There's nothing quite like it anywhere else. And it's, again, I think one of the reasons it, it sets the stage for a big moment. And, it, you know, it couldn't take place in some ordinary looking thing. It just wouldn't work. But, man, it is still breathtaking to behold the, the visuals, the backgrounds. Just everything going on here is striking. So our heroes get down into the valley. There's a, uh, an area that is very trunkless legs in the desert. Look on my work, see mighty. Where like there are these 
obvious roads, but the buildings all around it are crumbled to dust. So there's that part of the city, and then it sort of leads into the, the stuff you were talking about that's maybe built up more around the natural aspects of these, these shit, like these giant nautilus shells, yeah. uh, where there are no longer creatures inside, but they've been built into homes, and some of them are just the shell, but some of them look like they've had wood supports in them at some point. Yeah. Uh, lots of circular architecture and columns and glowing crystals. Uh, and then we get to one of the shell houses that has uh, a stairway in the bottom of it, which seems kind of odd because I thought we were on the surface of this lake. And it's just these, I would say it's a stairwell or a, or a staircase, except it's just the platforms of the stairs. Yeah. And they're just floating there. And there are these translucent crystals and they're, maybe they're glowing crystals. And there are no guardrails, which strikes me as very dangerous. <laughs> Ketra must have amazing balance. Speaking of Nomura, this really, this strikes me as looking like something out of Kingdom Hearts. And I know this comes before Kingdom Hearts, but it's got that sort of same visual appeal of like ethereal and, and glowing and yeah. just like the, the minimalistic parts. Like, what do you need for stairs? Well, you really just need that platform. Like guardrails would be nice, but what you need is that platform. And I, I feel like Kingdom Hearts tries to strike that, that sort of aesthetic sometimes. Yeah. So our heroes go down this, it's sort of a broad arch of a stairwell, and you go into this, I would call it a pit, except pit sort of conjures up this sort of grody, dusty imagery, and it's not that, it's very clean. It's very nice, as opposed to the ruins up top, uh, you come down to this palace almost, it's like its own little yeah. port, I guess. Yeah. It's, you know, very uh, peaked roofs and, and arched doorways and windows, and it's very pretty, and there's a shaft of light coming down upon what's essentially an elevated platform. It's a kind of a dais or a, or a balcony out on a plinth further out on the surface of this uh, lake, which is kind of weird because, you know, I, I thought we were under the lake now. I'm, we're it's in not a lake underneath clear. a lake. Yeah. Right, exactly. So there's this sort of balcony thing. In order to get to the balcony, there are these stone columns coming up out of the lake uh, that you're going to have to hop from, from one column surface to the other to get there. And the shaft of light illuminates the balcony, and kneeling upon the balcony is Aerith. And, and she's kneeling there, and she's got her hands clasped, and she's either in prayer or meditation or communion, I assume, with the ancients and the planet. And Cloud hops up onto the columns, and he's going to go talk to Aerith. He gets up onto the sort of balcony, and there's like a, a pre-balcony to the balcony and a set of stairs going up to the balcony balcony where Aerith is. And, he, and so he hops up there, and he gets to that spot, and then he stops. And there's a red flash of light. And you can control Cloud and, and bring him up the stairs. And then he stops, and he draws his sword. It's like, okay, hang on a second. So if yeah. you, you, you're still controlling Cloud, right? Like you're still moving him around. And you can sort of move him one way or the other, but you get him close enough to Aerith and he will raise his sword up. He's yeah. like, oh no, I was just <clears throat> trying to talk to her, right? And he, he's got his sword over his head. And now you can't move, well, you can't make him walk. You can move him like he's struggling, but his feet won't move, right? Like, so you can just sort of like twist and tilt him. And then a little bit more and, and he uh, begins to, like he, he starts shaking. He's trying to stop himself. So you can control him, but not really. And Aerith, through all of this, she just kneels there. She doesn't do anything else. She's just kneeling there. 
and like you can't like you could just turn off the game right we've talked about this <laughs> the hand of fate you could stop you could just turn right. off the game right here but if you want to know what happens you know you keep trying to move cloud and push buttons because it really makes you feel like you might be about to strike Aerith down yourself which would be absolutely horrifying and traumatic yeah I'm pretty sure if that's what happened I would have stopped Fair enough. Like, that's it. I'm done. Fair enough. So, uh, he, you know, he's shaking and he's trying to stop himself. And then he, he goes to strike. And whichever characters you've brought with you shout at you from, from down the way a little bit. Uh, and that's what brings Cloud out of this whatever's going on, right? Out of being controlled, presumably, by the bad guy. And for a moment, it looks as though disaster has been averted. Yeah. They give you that moment. Yeah, they do. And then Aerith opens her eyes and she looks up at Cloud. And then our perspective shifts and we're well above the scene. We're, we're high up above and we see Sephiroth and he is dropping from I don't know, the, other, the, the bottom of the other lake perhaps. Yeah. Uh, and he's got his giant sword drawn and he, he lands upon the balcony in such a way that he also impales Aerith through the back and through her stomach. And um, you get that heartbeat sound right? when bad things are happening in Final Fantasy VII. And uh, he, he sort of looks up at Cloud and he smirks. Yeah. At least that's the way I remember. He smirks just a little at Cloud. Like, you know, gotcha. Yeah. Uh, and he slowly pulls the uh, blade from the body of Aerith, uh, and she falls forward. And in falling forward, the, the bow that had held her hair back all this time, it comes undone, it snaps, and the little crystalline sphere that had been part of that accessory. The, uh, the materia, she said, that does nothing, that Cloud tried to tell her, no, you don't know what you're doing. You, you don't know how materia works. Pfft. When he, he did his little mansplaining thing, that little materia that does nothing comes undone and it flies through the air and it strikes the stone of the balcony. That's where Eris theme plays. Yeah. And it, it continues to bounce sort of down the stairs a little bit and then drops into the lake. So Aerith collapses and uh, Cloud catches her, so she, you know, she falls into his arms. Uh, and Sephiroth just sort of stands there behind them with his, with his arms spread in, in victory or in, you know, I, I'm just taking up as much space as he can. I'm not mm -hmm. quite sure what it is. But Cloud's got his back to him, right, holding Aerith. And you know, Sephiroth could just take him out because Cloud is obviously wrecked. Yeah. And then Sephiroth does kind of he has this little monologue here where he kind of says the thing that we said earlier where he says do not worry 
Soon she will become part of the planet's energy, which is a f***ed up justification for murder. Right? Like, the more people I kill, the more your power just becomes who I, you know, I'm going to become the god of this planet, so don't even worry about it if I murder you. Right. He says, all that's left is to go north. The promised land awaits me over the snowy fields. There, I will become a new being by uniting with the planet, as will this girl. This girl, as though he doesn't know her name. Right. Honestly. Yeah. It's doing it all on purpose. Cloud says, shut up. Aerith is gone. What about us? What are we supposed to do? What is this pain? My fingers are tingling. My mouth is dry. My eyes are burning. Sephiroth says, what? You're saying you have feelings now? Of course. What do you think I am? Sephiroth laughs and he says, stop acting as though you're sad or angry because Cloud, you are... And then he flies away and there's a fight with Genova. Another one of those Genova monster bits. Yeah. I find this really jarring and I imagine it's supposed to be. Sephiroth impales Aerith, the, uh, the little marble materia that does nothing strikes the floor and begins Aerith's theme and then all throughout all of this it's just her theme playing so even while fighting Genova it's really jarring to have this sad Aerith theme playing the whole time while you've got all these battle sound effects going I do not like it but I think I'm not meant to yeah I find it to be one of the most powerful things about this entire scene actually is that her music plays over the top of all of this and doesn't go away during the battle because the same way it feels like it doesn't fit a battle scene you know if you had to fight somebody right after losing someone you love which is something that happens in war battles or whatever in real life fantasy stories whatever a lot that would be a remarkable contrast of emotions. And I think the game drives that point home so deeply by doing that. I think it would emotionally let you off the hook if it kicked in with battle music right here. Yeah, yeah, that seems... It it doesn't want to let you stray away from the emotional state that you were in I also think it's one of the things that helps sell the finality of it. You know, we will maybe start getting into these conversations, but, you know, of course, for years and years, people thought there must be a way to bring Aerith back, whether that's because in previous games, characters that died oftentimes did come back, you know, fantasy stories often, because there's magic and all kinds of things, and... You know, you you can often come up with an excuse for it. And uh, the game even drives that home by, from this point forward, leaving her space empty in your party select screen. Um, All of these things, you know, even leaving a space for her at the end of the game, people have talked about that. Maybe she's supposed to be there, but that's because there's this hole in your team and, and in your heart right now. And... You know, in the same way, so it's like, yeah, your your negative feelings with this music playing while you're trying to battle Genova is, it's mirroring that, that, that hole, that there's something missing. This doesn't feel right. Something, this isn't right. This is, this is wrong. This doesn't feel right. And yeah, it's just so, so I, I think effectively done. Uh, really the, the entire scene as you described it, I think anybody who's 
played this game or watched someone play this game, been through it, could close their eyes as you were going through it and see each moment of it happening, right? These are iconic scenes of, of Sephiroth landing on top of her, of her falling forward, of the materia coming out, the musical cue, which in my estimation is the best musical cue in any video game I've ever played. Maybe, maybe the best musical cue ever, and, and for me, for me personally. Like, it's so perfect and dramatically done and, and heart-wrenching to hear her music come up in that moment and then to not leave you even through the last part of it, which you haven't even described yet. But it's, yeah, it just, it just gets into you in, in every single way. And I, I think it's one of the reasons why this is such an impactful moment. The, 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 all of the things going together. We've talked before about you know video gaming, and this gets us into why is it a seminal moment in gaming? What are video games capable of? It's the combination of some very basic elements, right? We've got visuals, we've got audio, we've got storytelling, and we've got gameplay. And I remember in that original GameSpot review of Final Fantasy VII, when they said, never before have those things come together as well as they do in Final Fantasy VII, and that can be said exactly of this moment. Beautiful camera angles, this scenic place, this thing like you've never seen before. It's shot interestingly. The cinematography is gorgeous. The music is unmistakable. We care about all of the characters involved. It furthers the plot in a dramatic way, but it also, it just punches you right in the gut. And I think if you were really leaning into the themes, you either had two reactions to this. One, you're devastated at the loss of a friend, and she's such a beloved character, she's such a well-written character that you're just heartbroken. Or, denial. She's not really dead. We can maybe bring her back. We can do a thing. But either way, there was no way to go through this unless you just didn't like the character. But like, if you've played through this point of the game, you, you're into these characters. You're, if you've gotten to this point, she means something to you. And it, it really does create a, a visceral feeling in the player, whether it's she's gone or, oh my God, there must be some way to bring her back, right? Like you're, you are now not just playing a video game. You, you are experiencing something as a human being. And that's why this is such an important moment. So uh, we defeat the Genova, the, the bit of Genova, and we get the end of Sephiroth's taunt here. So he started with, stop acting as though you're sad or angry because Cloud, you, you are just a puppet. Yeah. So Cloud is scared to know, right? Uh, he, he's afraid to know what it is he doesn't know. And now we're going to start getting into that. But for the moment, we have to take care of our friend. Depending on who's in your party, uh, you know, with arrows slumped against the wall of the balcony there, they, they have differing reactions. So they all take it hard even the ones who haven't known her uh, as long. Red howls, Tifa has this nice moment where, he's, where she sort of uh, 
strokes Aerith's face. She brushes face. her hair back, or, yeah, it's just, uh, that one kills me. That one really hurts to watch. These, I, I think, you know, the primitive graphics don't do some of these interactions the the most favors. Be really interesting to see in a remake, just in general, how this scene is handled. There's a lot of speculation about this and whether she'll even die here. But Tifa, there's something so intimate about Tifa brushing her hair back, or, or as you said, maybe just sort of lightly touching her face and saying goodbye. That even, yeah, even talking about it now gets me. That one's really, I don't know. Like, I think intimate's the right word. It's it it's powerful. Yuffie, like, just can't. Just can't. She's just sobbing yeah. and she runs away. Barrett puts his hand on Cloud's shoulder. That's another one that's like, uh, he's kind of trying to be there for his buddy, but and they've been clashing heads the whole time, but this is one of those moments where none of that matters and we're just a family who lost a person. Like, they're all just heart-wrenching. and uh, Yeah. So Cloud uh, lifts her up, you know, in his arms and carries her to the edge of the lake and and he he walks into the lake right like waist deep and i kind of get the impression that this is one of those lakes that uh has a real shallow bit for a while and then drops off yeah because he's able to stand uh in the water up to his waist and he must go up to this edge and he just holds her out over it uh for a moment and then lets her go and she slowly sinks into the water and uh her, her arms sort of fall off to the sides. And yeah. she just sinks until you can't see her anymore. Yeah. Oh, it's so... So powerfully done and so emotional to think about. And there are a million sketches and, and fan art. And it's been redone and shown in, you know, in Advent Children or uh, whatever. It's just... It's so iconic all, all of it really as a as a moment and then there are the collections of just visual images that stick out in your head and him standing there with her in the water and then that final shot where we just see her face and her hair now it's all spread out as wide as it can be all the hair and like you said her arms wide open like an angel sorry but <laughs> she just and she was she was the least tainted person in the group, right? The person with the least amount of blood on their hands if you want, you know, she wasn't involved in the reactor bombings or you know, creating any of this. She was not totally innocent. We've talked about how this idea of her is this pure, demure, you know, that's not accurate. She's tomboyish in a lot of ways and great sense of humor and all this stuff, but yeah, to to lose her, the best of us, they might say, you know, that's mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, soldiers will say that a lot um, and that's really what she was and so it's just like god it hurts and, and to watch yeah. her fade away like that where you know a lot of times the, uh, the villain the final villain of a Final Fantasy game will disintegrate into pieces and, and kind of fiery glow to watch her just sink into the water and it dissipate uh, yep Yep, there's a reason that a lot of people, when when you find polls, uh, certainly for a certain generation about, you know, what's the first moment in video games that made you cry or what's one of the moments that made you feel most emotional, this tends to be at the very top of the list. 
as you said, I personally spent a lot of time on the Internet trying to figure out if you really could resurrect Aerith. You cannot. Uh, but I read no. plenty of stories about, well, my cousin who works at Square told me they were going to have a way, uh, but they just didn't have time to get to it. Yeah. That also strikes me as chocobo pucky. Yeah. And, and like you said, there's a hole in the team layout. Like when you go to your, uh, when you go to your menu, right, there's, there's a space for her, and she's just gone. There are ways to get, like you can get her most powerful weapon early, right? Uh, you can get her most powerful limit break early, Right. Like before anybody else, she was the best healer. You will not have another healer near as good as her for the entire game. Right. There's a gameplay loss that you feel here yeah. too. Yeah. They reinforce the feeling of Aerith being gone through all these ways and the way that a game can that other media cannot. Like, you know, a, a beloved character dies in a book series. You can make that felt in the narrative, right? In a movie, you can, you can do that too. But there are things that games can do that other media cannot. And so it, reinforcing that through the gameplay, or in this case, the lack of gameplay, was really well done. But I do have to point out that Aerith is not the first Final Fantasy character to die, not even the first hero or, or party character to die. So we talked about... All right, spoiler warning real quick. We're about to get really into all the deaths in the first six games, cross-comparing. So if you want to skip all that, jump to minute 38. In Final Fantasy 2, right, Scott? Everybody dies. <laughs> yeah, lots Fantasy of deaths two. in that game. It's just bodies everywhere. There's a, a character who Princess Hilda knows, Scott, who dies, and it's sort of the impetus for our heroes to be able to say, to, to sort of get in on things. Joseph who holds back the boulder and then is crushed by it. Minwoo, who's been our, our companion multiple times. And, you know, there's a twinge of this sucks, war, war is hell, but it doesn't feel the same. All throughout Final Fantasy IV, there are deaths that end up not sticking, right? Palom and Purim, even though I know Palom and Purim are coming back to, to life, that they're going to be unpetrified, that moment still hurts because I love those kids and I don't want them to, to be hurt in any way. But it's not... It's not the same because I know they're coming back. Tella, uh, Tella's a great character. He dies for real. Doesn't feel the same. Gala from Five, loved that dude. Uh, the quirky king who can't remember things and then pretends he can't remember things. Right. General Leo of Final Fantasy VI. That one hurts because I thought for sure he was going to be on the team. Shadow at the end of Six. I've I've talked before about why that one doesn't quite hit me uh, the way maybe it's meant to. And then we just talked about, you know, Sith sure. sacrifices himself but <laughs> right. doesn't. Just now, that feels more Final Fantasy IV than anything else to me. But this one really hurts. Even after all this time, it hurts. Right. So I think there are a few things that, actually using all of those examples, we can kind of triangulate it, right? Because... So first of all, in Final Fantasy II, I just don't think the characters were quite well-written enough or quite deeply developed enough to elicit this kind of response just yet. Maybe a lot of that was due to technical limitations, which still existed with 4, 5, and 6, but they were starting to overcome it. So similarly to this Aerith scene, the, the Palamon Porum scene sticks with us because the music is great. They do make a sacrifice that our first time through, we didn't know they were going to come back from, and they didn't know they were going to come back, back from. And one other thing is they're very young, right? That kind of yeah. lost potential. And then, but it isn't. 
Then you mentioned a few other characters who fit more nicely into the Obi-Wan Kenobi trope, where, right, it's, they're the wise elder, sure. and it's still emotional, even, it's emotional when Obi-Wan Kenobi goes, but it's, maybe, it doesn't wreck you, because one, they're not, you know, either kids like Palom and Porum, or Aerith is 20, 21 years old, you know, that lost potential isn't there. And we've talked about how that sort of a, can be a, a problematic trope of like the role of the old wise person is to pass on their wisdom and then die. Right. <laughs> yep. like, uh, there, there's more things for elders to do, but there is also, it's a little bit more comfortable inside the tropes that we're used to from fantasy stories where that does often happen. So Tella and Gallif play the Obi-Wan Kenobi Merlin role and inside of that, it's also understood that they pass on their legacy and potential. It's a big part of what they're there to do. And so that's even, you know, you talked about how Aerith's death is so well reinforced through gameplay mechanics. The opposite is when Kryle comes along and now she has all of Gallif's powers. And so while you've lost Gallif as a gameplay mechanic, you haven't lost anything. So, you know, yes. All of these deaths are in and of themselves sad, but I think you could say that none of them really go all the way in that Aerith does. She's just gone. She's totally and completely and irrevocably gone. And no one can or will even try to replace her, and it will just destroy our characters for the rest of the game and like the movie that comes after, it just has these far-reaching consequences and some of which we don't even know about, most of which we don't even know about yet. But yeah, you know, there's no thing that lets you off the hook in any way like so many of these other deaths do. And then you talked about, you know, some of them being undercut by them not being final. So this one with Aerith, there's the finality of it. There's her youth. There's the execution of it, that it was done so well, which I think sells all of those other things as well. Like, why would they make such a big, dramatic play of all this if she was just going to come back, right? But mm -hmm. I, I think it's the combination of all of those things. We hadn't really seen, and it happens earlier in the story as well, that sure. yeah. a main There's still character, a lot of story to go. Yeah, in fact, as soon as she fades out there, right, uh, that's when we get the pop-up and it says, that's the end of disc one, enter right. disc two of a three-disc game. And so it, it feels like sort of the end of what is ultimately the giant setup for the story of this game, where we still now have to uncover the truth about Cloud and stop Sephiroth. And we've really now just learned what the real stakes are. And as we're about to set out on that big adventure, we lose this person who means so much to us. So it's the timing of it. All of those elements come together to create something we had never really felt or, or seen in gaming before. And maybe one way to help us understand it even deeper is to get outside of gaming for a minute and, and think about some of the other moments in, in books or movies or TV that have achieved this same kind of iconic status.
So, uh, you know, what are the aspects we're looking for, right? So a big moment doesn't necessarily have to be a character death, uh, but often they are. Doesn't necessarily have to even be a plot twist, right? But just some big event in some story of some kind that we all sort of experienced separately together. Right, right. So the ones I'm thinking, the ones that come to mind for me right away are uh, Darth Vader's reveal in Empire Strikes Back that he is Luke Skywalker's father. Right now, I was a, I was born in '81, so I didn't see this until later. So that's part of what right. I mean by separately together, right? Like there were people who already knew in my life that this happened, but I, I didn't really until I saw it in the movie, and it's, it's a big moment to, to realize that our hero is. Uh, connected in, in a familial way to our villain and people still talk about it right like you, you can see videos you can see reaction videos of people with right. children showing their kids this movie series and they want to get the kids reaction and put it on youtube because it's a big freaking moment right and similarly there are a lot of reaction videos on youtube of people reacting to this particular Aerith moment and there are some people who don't know it's coming. Some people who do, it's also kind of reached that level where, you know, it's it's so famous. I, I can think of a few other spoilers, uh, particularly Goose and Top Gun yeah. and uh, The Sixth Sense. Those are ones where I feel like even if you haven't necessarily seen those movies, you know the spoilers. And similarly, this era thing has kind of reached that status where if you're a big time gamer and you've never touched a Final Fantasy game, you may well know that Aerith dies. Sure. You probably do, right? It's just that much a part of the industry. And I know there are a lot of people who have, like, say, played Kingdom Hearts or later games in the series first, and, and there's some references to it. Sure. And then they'll go back and they'll be like, I know this is coming. And in fact, I referenced her last episode, but uh, Nixie Puff's reaction to this was, I knew it was coming and that was still horrible to watch. And she, you know, it's still because it's so well crafted. It, it's so well put together, all of the parts. So even if you know it's coming and it's not a spoiler or a twist for you, it's still a really powerful moment. And so, you know, uh, Super Smash Brothers recently added Sephiroth to its roster. Right. And in its right. reveal, one of the things is he drops down right beside Zelda. Yeah. Uh, yeah, presumably as a reference like, to this, like you bastards, right? <laughs> right. It's so twisted. And he impales Mario. Yeah, yeah. It, it, impaling Mario was pretty wild. That, that, um, was pretty, that was something I never thought I'd see. Yeah, uh, but yeah, the, these are iconic moments in gaming, and and that's a big part of why. And like we said, some of these other moments, uh, the sixth sense, whatever. We, we all kind of experience that together separately, right? At some point, we go, oh yeah, the thing. Mm -hmm. The, the end of season one of The Good Place, I feel like a lot of people yep. count that as one. You'll reaction videos to the end of Endgame, right? There, there are a few moments there that get big crowd reactions out of a theater-going audience. So uh, right. when, God, spoiler, do we need to say spoilers for Endgame? Spoilers yeah. for Endgame. So when Captain America wields Mjolnir, right? Yeah. That's a big one. Totally. When the uh, when the portals start opening, that's a big one. Yeah, when he finally says "Avengers Assemble," really yeah. that whole thing—it's kind of—it's similar to this, where there's a lot of iconic individual moments packed into one right. long iconic moment. Captain Marvel coming in and wrecking an entire ship. Right. You know, Peter Parker doing doing like all all those bits. Some of them I think work better than others, 
but they were bound to given how how much like you said is packed in there there's mm-hmm. a lot of moments from uh, game of the game of thrones tv show like i've seen like two episodes of this show but there are a lot of things i know about game of thrones just because i have the internet Right. You've heard the term the Red Wedding. The Red Wedding. And you probably yeah. know more or less what that is. Yeah, right? oh yeah, I've got a and, pretty good idea. And and hold the right. door and what we say to the god of death and you know lo- yes. lots of things like that. And because it was a big shared moment and I, you know, the battle that nobody can see because it's all in shadow. Like I, I only know these <laughs> things because I'm on the internet not because I've I've actually experienced it, but those sorts of shared experiences transcend, right? And now, you know, the the more culture reaches the the more our culture becomes globalized isn't quite the right word but that we're able to share our cultures more and more like 15 years ago i wouldn't have known what bollywood dancing is but now it's one of my favorite things to look at on the internet because it's just so fun and interesting and cool and so i like seeing that this has reached that status even from 1997 is is pretty darn impressive Right. You know, before most of us were on the Internet or where you could really do much on the Internet. And it took a while to get onto the Internet. There was a whole (laughs) ritual. (laughs) One person at a time and no one's allowed to use the phone. Don't pick up the phone, Mom. (laughs) On the Internet. Uh, Okay, so there are uh, two, two different degrees, various media you know, depending on what you're plugged into can have, have a variety of impacts, right? So I'm an English teacher and a librarian, and so books are a big one for me. So spoilers for Harry Potter, when Snape kills Dumbledore, right? Like that's a big cultural moment. And it might be more so for, like, I feel like Endgame reached so many more people. And Harry Potter did only after it became movies, right? But like for those of us reading the books, it was a smaller but still intensely shared moment. Right getting to the end of the Wheel of Time series. Again, much smaller audience, but for those of us who were doing it and who had to wait until after the death of Robert Jordan and Brandon Sanderson picked it up, you know, and then another three books before we finally find out how all of this is going to go down, it means a lot to the people for whom it means a lot, I guess. That's sort of obnoxious tautology, but... Right. Sharing such a big moment in in uh, in a fictional life is is a thing that our stories can do, and it's it's an important aspect of those stories. And like we just talked about, you can experience it with books and and TV shows. The uh, man, the Crisis on Infinite Earths for the DC CW Flareoverse stuff was so yeah. cool, man. But I feel like you know it, it doesn't have the same reach as Endgame, but that doesn't make it less. But it does make it slightly different, right? And there are a lot of other ones, you know, in the series. We talked a lot in 6 and 4. You know, there are moments. Final Fantasy games really are these collections of iconic moments. Cecil becomes a paladin. The opera. Kafka poisons a castle. There's a bunch of them in 6 we we went through. It's like one of the great things about that game. The ghost train. You can kind of separate it out to each one of these moments. And... Going forward in the franchise, the end of Final Fantasy X. But I do think that there's a thing that happens, like the Beatles releasing Rubber Soul. And yes, I'm going to continue to compare the Beatles to Final Fantasy VII because the the comparisons are just too perfect. We've talked about there was rock and roll music before, great rock and roll music, Mighty Waters, Elvis, that's your 
Chrono Trigger, and Final Fantasy IV and VI, Secret of Mana, and all these other games. And if those made you emotional, they made a certain group of people, like you said, it doesn't make it less that it was kind of a smaller niche audience that was having these shared emotional reactions to Celeste throwing herself off of a mountain. Why wouldn't you get emotional at that? But I do think that that GameSpot quote is absolutely right, that for a majority of audiences, and when you look at the numbers, and not everything is in game sales, but when you look at the number of people this connected with, I don't think it's a coincidence. I don't think it's because of marketing. I think it's because this was extraordinarily well done. That, and it was the first. It, and, and it's not, again, not the first that could have made you emotional, but for so many people, a video game that took you to this place and never gave it back to you the way Final Fantasy IV does. You know, there are moments in, in six that are definitely heartbreaking, but I, I do think this is the moment. I do think if I was to make a top 10 moments in the history of Final Fantasy, I think you'd have to say this one, especially if you're trying to do it objectively, if you could even do something like that. We've talked about that before, but be, and, and some of its timing, like with the Beatles, that it was proof it could work. For all the great emotional places that 8, 9, 10, 12, 14 have taken me to, 7 was proof, and this moment is proof that it can work, and, and as much as we hate to maybe admit this part of it, especially at a game that has some fair critiques of capitalism, it's marketable. People will buy this experience in video game form. And for its emotional apex to be this scene where the flower girl is murdered in front of your eyes and you at 13 years old are sitting there crying over a video game or 11 or 25 or 36, go online and watch the videos of people crying at this. And it's like, yeah, it was the proof for all the games to come that not only can video games reach you in this way, but they can do so and be extremely popular and marketable and sell and you can then go and create more games that emotionally reach people and it's it's why it's so important it just yeah it, it really is that thing if it's if the if final fantasy 7 itself is the beatles of the video game world then this moment is their best album rubber soul or abbey road or whatever i mean you can pick again there are some other moments you can pick throughout here but this is it, it changed. This moment, as much as anything else in this game, changed the way video games are made. So we, we drew some parallels between this moment and other media that can have those impactful, moving moments. But, but it is worth remembering that a video game is different than a movie or a TV show or a book in that it gives you control, at least to some degree. It gives you some control over some aspects of it. And so it is different. And we talked about how the gameplay, the thing unique to video games, reinforces Aerith's absence once she is dead. And so I thought it might be interesting to try to talk about some other games, right? One of the things we do when we when we're literary criticism nerds, is we try to compare lenses and we try to compare narrative moves. So what other things can we think of where 
if it wasn't a video game, it would not, it could not be done that way. Like what, what games use the aspect of being a video game to emphasize their emotional moves. So we talked about Shadow of the Colossus in our setup episodes for this podcast a long time ago about the kind of ethos of the hand of fate and the moral responsibility of carrying out the actions of the player character just to do whatever the voice is telling you to do, right? So that's obviously one. But the one that springs to mind immediately for me that I had as close to a visceral reaction to this or or the end of 10 as anything else outside of the franchise has given me was the end of Metal Gear Solid 2. And really, Metal Gear Solid games are purposefully built so that they have to be video games. Like, you can't... There's a lot of, like, fourth wall breaking and the video game mechanics messing with you. There's a boss fight in the game that you can only win if you put one of the controllers into a different port. Like, Metal Gear Solid is built so that it, you know, I I think it can be experienced as a movie, but certainly the games themselves, it's just baked into every single part of it, right? But the end of the second one in particular, and again, spoilers, spoilers, if you haven't played Metal Gear Solid 2 and plan to, it's my favorite in the franchise, particularly because of its effectiveness at pulling off this move. And and it's funny that this is my favorite because it made me feel sick to my stomach. Like it, it, Metal Gear Solid 2 legitimately manipulates the player into having an experience that isn't real and that they pull the rug out from underneath you at the at the end and sort of explain there's like a lot of it that feels like Metal Gear Solid 1 and it's like oh these are kind of like homages but you're basically being programmed to become snake number two right and the whole thing has been this training exercise set up to turn you into the perfect kind of killing machine and almost all of it was fake and and just the extent to which it's pulled out from underneath you like it it hurts so bad and how much you go along with certain things or emotional connections you you made with players or people or or whatever that that just aren't real and it just it hurts so bad <laughs> it's just like uh, this is like this is legitimately twisted, um, and then you do get to kind of have the the coming out of the cave moment at the very end, and then you just kind of sit there thinking about the implications of discovering the truth, and you know what do you do now? It's similar feeling to like a like a Truman Show uh, at the end, where you're just like. I don't know how I feel, right? Like I just, I guess, I guess we did okay, but what? Actually, it's very similar in a lot of ways. Now that I'm thinking about it, to Truman Show, and so while this this Aerith moment isn't that kind of twist, I do think that they similarly use the medium of the game itself to drive home the emotional impact of what the story is is telling you. I want to bring up a, a couple of examples because I think that they are pretty far from Aerith's death, but they still they work because they are video games, and I think that's the important part to this aspect of the conversation. Uh, the first is Eternal Darkness. You remember Eternal Darkness? Hells yeah. Love that game. That was a GameCube game that was uh, about essentially dis- uncovering the history of these sort of Lovecraftian 
madness, God, monsters, and trying to stop them, right? And the way that it only works uh, because it's a video game, like this wouldn't necessarily work as a book or a movie because it takes advantage of certain gameplay aspects. It, it assumes you know how video games work and then it trains you how this video game works and then it messes with those things. So it will make you think for a moment that you that the volume is going down or that the controller isn't working right or that you've accidentally reset the game or, or any number of other things because not only is the character going mad, but so are you as the player. And I thought that was just so cool and so well done, right? And, yeah. and again, it only work, works because of the medium. Or the way it does it only works because of the medium. There might be ways to try and make the reader think they're going crazy in a book or, or, or the viewer in a movie. Uh, I, I imagine horror movies are trying to do that. But this works specifically because it's a game and it's so cool. The other one I want to bring up is a game called Journey, uh, which is just absolutely beautiful it's by uh, a group called That Game Company. And it is essentially the hero's journey without dialogue. Uh, you, your character wakes up in this beautiful desert wasteland, and you're sort of just given visual clues about go here, interact with this, here's how you jump really high and float, here's how you sing to other characters, and then here's how you view the history of what happened in this place. And slowly throughout the game you begin to realize, oh no, oh no. Throughout the game you can, you might interact with somebody else who is also playing that level, and there's no confrontation, right? It's just you, you sort of make your little singy tones toward each other and maybe if you know a thing if you've gotten a thing that the other person hasn't got you might try to lead them to it so it can be sort of helpful uh cooperative in that regard and and it just sort of leads you through this gentle story that is emotionally impactful because of those gameplay elements that you know it, it's a story without words that that wouldn't work in a book Right, and it probably wouldn't work very well in a show, even a silent movie. There's not that interaction that you get uh, with a video game. So yeah, that Final Fantasy VII took baby steps here, right? But it it allows for, like you said, it, it proved that it could work. So yeah, those those big moments in games uh, or those games that are only able to tell their stories because they are games owe a lot to this to this moment. Yeah, and you know that's kind of where I wanted to finish off this talking point was that now it's almost ubiquitous that even if you've got a racing game or a sports game, you try to tell some kind of story and they're not all necessarily great, but some of them end up being actually pretty good. And one of the genres that's experienced that is fighting games. Yeah, and I yeah. played recently through, uh, particularly the guys making Mortal Kombat and the Injustice stuff. And the Injustice storyline is so good, in fact, and the interactivity is really you know an important part of that, but they have been able to translate it now into a comic book. The first time that they were like, oh man, actually came up with some great ideas for the video game itself. And, you know, I, I think that, that in part is a part of the legacy of Final Fantasy VII of saying like, yeah, you can do it. You can make this impact regardless of genre. And it's taken some a little bit 
longer to get there than others, but the creators of things like The Last of Us, which, you know, rakes in all of these awards for being able to do this kinds of stuff. Uh, people making God of War also heralded and, and award-winning. Creators of all of those series have pointed specifically to Final Fantasy VII. And I even think about the timeline a little bit. I, I'd love to be able to maybe like interview one of these guys or or something, but because we would have been in kind of middle school, going into high school, playing Final Fantasy VII. So a lot of these guys who were like game designers in college who played this or people who were in college going, you know, maybe I want to write books. Maybe I want to make movies. Maybe I want to make TV shows. And then they played Final Fantasy VII because they're like, I want to tell stories. Right? That's what I'm, I'm a storyteller. And I love video games, but you can't really do that in video games. And then they would play Final Fantasy VII and go, oh, damn. You can do that. And be, I want to do this. It literally created a generation of storytellers inside of video games who are doing great, great stuff now. So, yeah, the it just... It's amazing the impact it's had. So if you're looking at things like The Last of Us or God of War, the, you know, a lot of these ones that were inspired by it or even something where maybe the you know, the people writing Injustice, that, I, that might even just be like DC staff at this point. You know, so it's like it has nothing to do with Final Fantasy VII. But the industry impact of storytelling and video game works and is marketable is still felt in that kind of stuff to this day. And it, yeah, it really is amazing. So, Ira, we've discussed how this moment stand up to and compare to huge moments and other media and why it's so important. But does that mean a lot of people are wondering now as we approach a remade version of it? This huge question looms now over this moment. Does it have to be this way? Is it blasphemous if in part two or three or whenever it happens of the remake, we get to this moment of the game. And this time, as we know, some things are different. They've put this on the table. The, the developers have purposefully put this thought into our mind. So I guess spoilers a, a little bit for anyone who hasn't played the remake, but we're, we're really just speculating here and having the conversation about some people see it as a, a straw-breaking, the camel's back moment. I'm out. This totally betrays the themes of Final Fantasy VII, which are all about death and moving on and you know Sakaguchi dealing with the death of his mother and uh, all of the finality. And we just talked about the importance of you know her not being there in the party and all of these things. So wouldn't keeping her alive totally undercut all of the themes of Final Fantasy VII and this quintessential and so important moment in gaming history? So my short answer is no. My longer answer uh, requires a digression. Yeah. Uh, as, as I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you've been listening to this podcast, Drew, but sometimes I get off on other topics in an attempt to come back around to. I think that's sort of the point of the podcast, though, so I think we're okay. <laughs> right, right. Okay. 
So I want to talk about a few other stories first. I want to talk about The Good Place, I want to talk about Wheel of Time, and I want to talk about Stranger Than Fiction. So The Good Place is a comedy sitcom about philosophy right? and, and what <laughs> happens after we die. And it's fan-frickin-tastic. Yes. Uh, so I'm going to be kind of careful here. Even though we do spoilers all the time, you have not seen all of this show yet. So right. one of the themes of this show is the reboots. That is, we get to try again. You know, just because we may have failed, for example, one time, doesn't mean we won't get to try again and potentially succeed. So I want to read a quote. It comes from season four, which you haven't seen yet. But it's not terribly spoilery, but it, it gets across my point here. You fail and then try something else. And then you fail again and again, and you fail a thousand times and you keep trying because maybe the 1,000 first idea might work. And, and I like that because, well, for a couple reasons. One, I'm a teacher and we talk about iteration and we, and we talk about being open to failing and trying again all the time. Like, you're not expected necessarily to succeed the very first time you try. And you've got to learn how to deal with failure. You've got to learn how to do a thing and then try again and then try again. You can't write a novel all on your first try. you got to write the thing and then you got to make it better. And so I like this comparison because Final Fantasy VII Remake is not the remake of Final Fantasy VII. It is Final Fantasy VII Remake. That is, it. it is clearly... We're trying again. Yeah, yeah. We're we're redoing or, or retelling or even remaking this story. Yeah, I I think that's fair. I, I can hear fans cringing a little bit and wanting to push back on this notion that they failed and therefore need to redo it, right? Which I don't think is quite the analogy you're you're trying to draw here, that there's something that needs to be fixed about the original game. As we've just discussed, and I think that's clear based on the hour that just came before this about how how well done this is. But that I think the point is is larger that there can be more than one right way to do something, and there can be more than one wrong way to do something. And and doing a moment this big doesn't necessarily mean doing it incorrectly if you're doing it differently. So The Wheel of Time is a 14-book fantasy epic series by Robert Jordan, who then died and it had to be finished by Brandon Sanderson. The main premise of this story is that the dragon has been reborn. So hundreds of years earlier, Luz Theron Telamon the dragon in his hubris faced the Dark One, and it did not go well. You know, he thought he was going to rid the world of the Dark One, and because of his arrogance... The Dark One defeated him and struck mad every male who could channel the One Power, which is their version of magic. And as we approach the end of the series, Rand Al-Thor, who is the reincarnation of Luz Theron Telamon, has finally... We're, we're, we're approaching the last battle. We're going to try again. And he is asked by one of his friends, you know, this didn't work last time. In fact, it failed spectacularly and has had a massive negative impact upon this world for the last however many hundreds of years. What's different this time? And Rand says, yeah, I made a lot of mistakes. Actually, first he says he made a lot of mistakes because he's still integrating his 
his memories of being loose there in Telamon. And he says, I grew arrogant. I grew desperate. But there's a difference this time. A great one. This time, I was raised better. It's because of Tam. Tam being his uh, adoptive father. It's because of Tam and because of the people around me. I like this comparison because, again, it's we have another opportunity. We have an opportunity to do it differently this time. And it's the people around me who are going to perhaps help me do it better, perhaps succeed this time. So, yeah, uh, you know, this has obviously always been part of the themes of Final Fantasy to begin with, that you know, the people around you, your, your party members, your family, the NPCs you've met along the way, give your, your life and your story meaning. And, you know, it, it usually comes closer to the, the ends of the games. But the way already, you know, that the remake is being retold, we know that took a lot longer. A lot more happened in Midgar this time already, right? Already gone through more with these characters. One of the things, again, spoilers, spoilers for the remake that's a little bit different right there at the end, for example, is Red 13 saying, hey, you're going to need a nose like mine. Basically being on board with the future adventure there. It, it does, that doesn't happen until much later in the original story, right? He, they're basically, when they get to Cosmo Canyon, he's like, all right, it's been fun. I'll see y'all later. No sense of, uh, hey, I'm in this big adventure. Because they hadn't gone through this episode with the Whispers and Sephiroth and them knowing all of these things. So things, it's, it's just, it's already different. And so if those relationships had changed and... You know, that is something that allows this current of events to be avoided. I think that could be very powerful thematically if done well. Stranger Than Fiction is a movie about an author played by Emma Thompson who's writing a story. It's sort of a, a tragic everyman story. Her stories always end with the main character dying. Well... Turns out the main character this time, played by Will Ferrell, exists in the world and uh, he begins to hear her voice in his head and he goes to Dustin Hoffman, who's a literature professor, it's and they start trying to figure movies. out... I love this movie. It's, <laughs> it's so, so good. good. So yeah, so they start trying to figure out what kind of story and once Dustin Hoffman figures out that Will Ferrell is in an Emma Thompson story, he's like, oh no, oh, no. Uh, <laughs> this is not going to end well for you. Like her stories are always beautiful but they always end with the main character dying. Um. So he goes to see her, and uh, he, he gets a hold of the manuscript. And, and at first he's like, you know, I don't want to die. I can be a better person. But then he reads the story, and he realizes, yeah, this is, this is correct. This is the way it has to be. The, uh, the accident happens, and then we cut to uh, Dustin Hoffman and Emma Thompson. She says, did you read the book? And he says, yeah. And she says the thing every author is always afraid to say, what'd you think? (laughs) (laughs) And he says, it's good. It's not great, but it's good. And then he says, why did you change the book? And she says, I realized I just couldn't do it. And he says, because he's real. And this is the part I love. She says, because it's a book about a man who doesn't know he's about to die, and then he dies. But if he knows he's about to die, 
And he goes anyway. He goes willingly. Well, isn't that the kind of man you want to keep alive? Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've always really loved that line. It's, it's really quite beautiful. And, uh, and, and it is interesting that it's a direct comment on literature, right? And there's a lot of people who believe with many things. I had a, a lit teacher in college who basically believed if your story has a happy ending, it's useless. And Yeesh. yeah, I know, right? And I know that there are a lot of people, while they maybe wouldn't go that far with it, sort of feel similarly to this, that if you take out the punch of this moment, that you're taking away the impact, the effect, the themes, and you're not achieving what is sort of the better literature moment, right? You're getting the Dustin Hoffman, well, it's good, but it isn't great. And I think that's what a lot of fans of this game originally and, and you know, for this moment have a fear of, that it's going to be fine, but not have the same impact it did before. And I, I will say this, I think it's a tough thread to weave here because Aerith isn't a real person, first of all. <laughs> and there is, you know, there's a lot of impact, not just in the world of gaming, but even for the rest of the story, a lot of things that would have to get changed around if you keep her alive. And, and so I think it, it would be a very difficult thing to pull off and do it well and have it be as great as the original was. But I don't think that that means that it's impossible by any measure, right? That's, that's just a lack of imagination and creativity to think that there's absolutely no way that it could be done. So first, if she does end up dying, I don't think that that would be bad. You know, none of this is to say that that her death is bad or, or her dying again would be bad. Second, I really don't like it when stories treat their characters only as symbols or metaphors, because in the context of the story, they're people. And I think that needs to come first. Whatever your story, whatever your metaphor, these characters are people first, or at least in the context of the story they are, and I, I think they should be treated that way. So you, you mentioned earlier that uh, some fans might cringe about how, you know, maybe we did it wrong the first time. And I don't, I don't want to give the impression that that's what I think. I don't think that Final Fantasy VII was a bad story or a bad experience. But I've also, you know, you know I, I, uh, I spent a lot of hours playing that game. I've spent a lot of hours pl now playing the remake. I also spent a lot of hours in the late 90s on the internet wondering if there really was a way to resurrect Aerith. I think that her death was impactful and important and exactly what was needed for that story. But I also think that now we are telling a new story. We are not beholden to what came before. We are not a pawn of fate. And Final Fantasy is so often about fighting inevitable calamity. From a 2,000 year time loop to uh, an inexorable empire to the recursion of sin. So, if I am given the opportunity to fight this fate, right, to, to right this wrong, to dismiss the whispers of how it's supposed to be and make this version of Gaia, 
just a little bit better, I will take that opportunity. So does that uh, answer your question? <laughs> Hells yeah. And to further that point, uh, I actually think I can transition us here into the final couple of topics. It's going to be a long one, but this is it's a big thing that happened in Final Fantasy. And no conversation about it, something this large, would be complete without, of course, quoting Shakespeare. You know, one of my favorite quotes of all time is that expectation is the root of all heartache. And in many ways, what we've been talking about here and what we're going to sort of summarize at the end is built into that because the death of Aerith in 1997, was completely unexpected, right? We compared it to Tella and Galif, but it's not completely unexpected that the older, wise character might die and pass on their powers. You know, we've talked about other characters, but it's not unexpected in a fantasy story that they might come back to life at some point and be revived. This, in 97, was completely unexpected, and that's part of why... You know, it is this huge moment in gaming. If you take a look at, you know, the giant moments in the history of video games before this, it's like, you know, Pong and Tetris coming into existence, Mario, Sonic versus Mario, maybe some arcade stuff. Then right before it, Mortal Kombat, right? And and the big argument around, okay, now is, are these video games for adults or how do we parse all that out? And then there's Final Fantasy VII. As much as we'd love to say, you know, earlier in the game, earlier games in the series had they were really important inside of gaming. They weren't cultural touchstones, the way Pong, Tetris, Mario, Sonic, and then Mortal Kombat were. But all of those are about, and I and I don't want to put it down in any way, but video games as a toy. Sure, there's, right? there's a set of mechanics, right? A, a, a th- a puzzle you want to figure out so that you can make choices to defeat the puzzle. Right. And so this moment in this game being a cultural touchstone, not because it was a video game phenomenon or a mascot that went global or something that scared the hell out of parents, but because it made people feel feelings. And that's what this is really all about. And it was unexpected at the time. So I think to to kind of wrap up the previous point, you know, it's not unexpected in video games now that a main character, main party member might die, uh, or even that Aerith will die. It's like the most famous spoiler in the history of video games. So it's not going to surprise anyone in the remake if it's done that way. On the other hand, if they pull the rug out from underneath you because you save Aerith, but maybe a different main character dies. Or maybe she dies at a different time so that it is unexpected. Or maybe there's, you know, there, there's so many other different ways to do it. I think that's why I love to put a bow on this point, the, the end of Final Fantasy VII. Because as you said, it's not just about defying fate, but also about just not knowing what's around the next corner. The Final Fantasy experience of wonder and discovery, and not knowing what's going to happen next, whether there's going to be an alien spaceship or a giant dragon or a robot in a cave or anything. It's all on the table. And so that's the one problem with a reboot or a remake in theory, right? But then the end of 7 Remake, they just go, nope, we're putting it all back on the table. 
including, by the way, you can cross-apply everything we've said here and on all the points that you made to the Zach situation. Sure, yeah. I know you didn't play Crisis Core, and that gets us into our final thing that we want to talk about here because, you know, that is not the only time, this death of Aerith is not the only time you are fighting through your tears while the characters are also fighting through their tears like a Final Fantasy specialty right? Giving you that deep emotional experience so yeah, there's actually two of my own personal top five most emotional moments in Final Fantasy history that are up for change right here and I'm totally fine with it Either way, whether it ends up being the same or you know, a slight variation, what it, whatever it is, but Ira, I did want to finish off talking comparatively about some of these other things. We've talked about other medium and, and other video games that compare, but what about other Final Fantasy games that reach us on this emotional level? For me, this is the second saddest or most emotional moment in the history of the franchise, even given all of the improvements that would come later with graphics and music and voice acting and, you know, all the things they could do, all the extra tools in their toolbox to tell stories, the death of Aerith still comes in at number two all-time for me, franchise history. Final Fantasy X ending, we'll get there one day, but that is still, that just... Final Fantasy X ending it like obliterates me. I've never watched that and not cried. Like I watch right. other people play it. Like I, it, I don't sob anymore, uh. but like like a single tear is like the absolute best I can do. It's just heart wrenching. But again, I think the unexpectedness of the Aerith moment for an entire industry—you just didn't expect video games to take you to that place. And it's going to be hard to recreate that feeling in the remake. And I think that's why they put anything on the table. Even if just to give you hope that it might not happen to do it again. Like, it was, it's just right. brilliant. that it. So I did put together my own little personal list, and I, I tweeted it out here. But Ira, what are some of the moments that just come to mind for you that have gotten you most kind of choked up? Either in a sad way or some of these are, are you know, sometimes it's more inspirational tears in some of these games. Another quick spoiler warning. Uh, these are pretty light and generic other than Final Fantasy III, which we totally spoil here, but we are going to run through some of the more emotional moments in Final Fantasy history and lightly touch on each one of them. So if you're super sensitive to spoilers, you might just want to skip to the very end. You can skip to the hour and a half mark. Yeah, a, a lot of those for me are when they all come together at the end, right? So when... Even though it's not, uh, you know, the, the graphics are kind of poor. Final Fantasy III, right? Uh, when the Dark Warriors and Doga and Unai come together to help our light warriors, or excuse me, warriors of the light, right, to take on Zand, who did not at all appreciate that gift of mortality. You know, it's interesting. I was talking about we're fighting fate, right? Zand, in a way, was trying to fight his fate, being right. given the gift of, of mortality. But he did it in a destructive way, whereas I feel like oftentimes the Warriors of Light are trying to fight, you know, a calamitous fate. 
So when they come together in Final Fantasy III to, to help fight against the void of nothingness, or in Final Fantasy IV when they all pray, I, I, they sort of, yeah, I guess they, they pray around the tower, right? Or the hymn of the faith at right. the end of Final Fantasy X to, to support our heroes. Like everyone in the world is singing the hymn of the faith the self-help pamphlet of Final Fantasy VI. Right, right, so, right. So those, those moments of sacrifice, of appreciating that gift of mortality that Zand got so upset over, are important, I think. But coming together to all be the warriors of light are the ones that really get me, I think. Yeah, I think the one on my top 10 list that I put out there that hits that the hardest, at number five, I have You're Not Alone from yes. Final Fantasy oh. IX, that scene that we'll obviously talk about when we get there. And really the entire end of nine works on that principle. So it, I kind of put those together. Uh, I did want to mention at 10, I've got the Palomon Porum moment. We were sort of, sure. I, I don't want to, we were, I don't know, disparaging it earlier, but certainly saying, you know, this moment's more impactful because it's not undone. But Palomon Porum really, really does get me, particularly the image of the children as stones holding the wall. Like, it's just a powerful image. I'll go through the rest of these really quickly. Nine, I had the end of Heaven's Ward. No spoilers there, but I know you haven't gotten to that yet. Mm-hmm. Oyo, boyo. Um, and I've not yet played Stormblood or Shadowbringer, so sorry about that. We'll see how we update that when we get there. At number eight, I'll just say the Tietra moment from Final Fantasy Tactics. Oof, yeah. That really, really guts me, especially in the War of the Lions when the characters are fleshed out a little bit better. Two more recent ones on my list here. At seven, I have from the seven remake the talking about retellings and doing things differently, Biggs and Jesse moments on the yeah. pillar. Yeah. Um, and particularly the Jesse one, not to it, but the, it just, Je, that, that really, 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 really got me. At number six, I've got the end of Final Fantasy 15, really like all of it, but you could specifically point to the campsite scene, mm-hmm. as most people are aware. Um, I mentioned You're Not Alone at number five and the end of Final Fantasy IX. At number four, Celeste's Leap of Faith from Final Fantasy VI. And then I'll I'll be very curious to see how you respond when we get to this a few episodes from now after we wrap up the OG Final Fantasy VII. You're going to have to experience the story of Crisis Core for the first time. So I've watched videos of other people (laughs) playing this game and finishing it, and I just... Like I'm, you're. I, <laughs> the end yeah. of that game is just man. I'm, I'm very. I feel like we should almost do the podcast like immediately after you finish, but that would almost maybe not be fair. So like, if I go to YouTube and just like look for the cutscenes, what there's a three, three and a half, four hour movie. Yeah, something. Okay, like that. all right. I'm I'm up for that. Yeah, just be prepared. Is all I'm saying. <laughs> As best not, you can. <laughs> not my first Final Fantasy. I right. Understand. And then as we talked about in the top two spots, we have here the death of Aerith. And at number one, the ending of Final Fantasy X, which is just a master class of tragedy storytelling. <laughs> like, just, and, and, and we'll get to that moment. But, yeah, I think one final note that I had here that I wanted to make about the death of Aerith and 
why I think it works for all of these other reasons that we've talked about is that it internally inside the game itself and externally for the world of gaming is breaking its own metaphor. We talked earlier a while ago about the train analogy and Barrett saying, jump off the train, you know, and, and, and cloud when they were in Midgar, the train was an analogy for class warfare and about how people stuck in the lower classes can only go where the train will take them. And kind of extended into this metaphor about taking control of your own destiny. And you remember right before Sephiroth kills Aerith, it looks like Cloud is going to because he doesn't have control of his train, right? He doesn't, he's, he's stuck on a track. And then in this moment when Aerith is killed and Sephiroth tells Cloud, you're just a puppet, now our train analogy isn't about class warfare. It's about whether or not human beings have self-determination and free will and the ability to choose or whether or not we are what, Ira? Prisoners of destiny and fate. So to those who say that those aren't the themes of the original game, the themes of the original game are death and loss and like, yes, those are some of the themes, but fighting against destiny and fate is now all Cloud has. He's still trying to jump off of that train he's on. And so in addition to everything else of this being a beautifully, I dare say, I never use this word, Ira. We, we, we stay away from this one. Our mother says this word is way overused, but I will say that for the moment it occurred, this is perfect. Everything from walking down into that room to the moment you release her and she falls into the bottom of the water, the battle scene in the middle, it has to be there. There has to be a gameplay element, the audio element, the visual element, the emotional element, and the transition of the core analogy, the train and the story being primarily about class warfare, little guy versus big guy, and now it being about do we have a choice at all? Can we break ourselves free from what we are, quote, supposed to be and instead make a choice, even if you only have seven seconds? Aerith has been killed, so what do we do next? Cloud is obviously having a, a pretty tough time. His friend you know, killed right in front of him, but also he is a puppet, right? What does that mean? 
So we get here uh, this sort of declaration of his motivation. I am Cloud, ex-soldier, born in Nibelheim. I came here of my own free will, or so I thought. However, there's part of me I don't understand, part of me that gave Sephiroth the black materia. That's why I should quit this journey. But he destroyed my hometown. He killed Aerith, and he's trying to kill the planet. We must get the black materia back before Sephiroth uses it. Will you come with me? That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening, and thank you to everyone who's reached out to us. Feel free to let us know what we missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned by following us on Facebook and or Twitter at FFWeeklyPod, or you can email us at FinalFantasyWeekly at gmail.com. You can also find us on Patreon.com slash FFWeekly for more episodes and content, and be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Join us next time when our heroes have to learn to live and save the world without error.